Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. This morning we're going to be looking in verses 21 through 27. And as you're turning there, uh, allow me to say thank you to Dr. Greenway for allowing me to preach. Um, it's always a little bit dangerous to have someone who used to preach, who hasn't preached in a while, come to preach. Usually that's a warning that's going to go about five minutes long. Uh, there's not much laughing. <clears throat> uh, there we go. There we are. All right. But thank you for the opportunity, Dr. Greenway. It is always a joy and an honor to open up the Word of God for the people of God and knowing that the power is not in me, it is in God himself as he carries out his will in all of our lives when the word is preached. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. If you're willing and able, would you please stand with me out of reverence and respect as we read the perfect word of God and place ourselves underneath its authority. And this is what Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit beginning in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me because you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then give back to each person according to his deeds. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God of love, a God of justice, a God of holiness. You are infinitely perfect in all that you are. And Lord, we are grateful that you, in your infinite wisdom, have chosen to reveal yourself to us authoritatively and sufficiently through your word. So Lord, as we come under the preaching of the word of God this morning, we pray that you would be, be with me. Lord, help me to rightly divide your word. Help me to ensure that my witness is not contrary to the preached word. And Lord, we pray that your spirit be working amongst us. We know that illumination belongs to you, so Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Conform us where we can be conformed. And Lord, we will give you all of the honor and all of the praise that you are due. And we ask this in the name of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. When was the last time that you heard news that absolutely, fundamentally rocked your world? Here's, here's what I mean. Most of us, 
Uh, even if we're not planners, we, we have some type of plan in our mind's eye. Maybe it's, maybe it's you on your own. Maybe it's you and your spouse where, where you get together and, and you say, uh, you know, here's where we think God has called us. And, and we have a kind of a roadmap or a highway or a trajectory, at least in our mind's eye. And we, we kind of make decisions based upon those trajectories according to how God has called us. And things come our way and we make decisions based upon, well, I think this is where God is leading me. And I think this is where God God is leading me. Most of us do that. Most of us have a type of trajectory that we see in front of us. But then there are those moments when, when we receive news so stunning, so stunning that it alters where we are at and it fundamentally changes the trajectory of where we thought we were headed. Not this last summer, but a summer ago. We were at the Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville, and it was a great week. It was a great pastor's conference Sunday night and Monday. It was a good, it was a good SBC on Tuesday, and Wednesday is usually my favorite part of the Southern Baptist Convention because that's when we host the seminary luncheon, and usually that's the capstone. That's where we get to celebrate with one another, and that was the week that we got to unveil TBC. We unveiled the new logo. We unveiled the core values of being Christ-centered, scripture-driven, and focused on. It was a great week. And there as a family, my wife and daughter and I were in our hotel room on Wednesday morning getting ready for that luncheon, not knowing that in five minutes something would happen that would change the trajectory of my life and my loved one's life. I was getting ready, and the phone rings. And my wife picks it up, and she says, Hi, Mom. And I look over, and she just mouths the words, Your mom, my mom. I continue to get ready. And then I'll never forget, and if you've been here, you know what I'm talking about. There was a sharp inhalation of breath, a, and I knew. I knew. My wife started to cry. I could hear my mom's voice on the other end of the phone, even though I was not holding it yet. And she looks up at me, my wife does, and says, your dad has just died. And as she begins, it's slow motion. And, and if you've been in my shoes, you know how this works. In slow motion, my hand begins to extend to reach for the phone. And, and her hand, in slow motion, begins to extend the phone to me. And in that moment, in what probably was half a second or one second, a million thoughts went through my mind. Here is a man named Joe Skog who is not my biological father. I am Chippewa Indian. The name Skog is Norwegian. Obviously, I ain't Norwegian. And yet, I'm thinking about this man who married a single mother of two. When I was two and a half, he became my dad. He gave everything to me. He had me in church. He gave me the legacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in church, week in and week out, to hear the gospel. He was at all my games. He was at everything in my life. And second, the most important thing was the legacy of Christ. But second most important, on my 18th birthday, he legally adopted me and gave me his name. So I stand a skull. That is my dad. He was at every major event in my life. He was there at my wedding. He was there. And in a moment, he's not. And that fundamentally changes you. I don't get to call him at 
cowboy games anymore to weep with one another, right? Cowboys fans, we're there. He's not there to help me with decisions in my life anymore. But more than that, as I finally grabbed the phone and I could hear my mom uncontrollably weeping on the other end. She just lost her husband. You see, my dad was the type of guy who did everything for my mom. Took care of the cars, took care of the bills, took care of, took care of everything. And so for the next year and a half, my mom, every time I call her, I can still hear the brokenness in her voice. I can still hear the loneliness in her voice. I can still hear a woman who misses her husband on a daily basis. And there are times on the phone when we'll be laughing and all of a sudden she'll simply start crying. And I get it. There's nothing wrong with that. But that moment fundamentally changed the trajectory of my life and it fundamentally, necessarily changed the trajectory of my mom's life. The disciples have just heard news in Matthew chapter 16. They have heard news that begins them thinking down a trajectory. You see, previously in Matthew 16, Jesus said to them, who do people say that I am? And they say, some think that you're Elijah, others Jeremiah, right? And he said, he, he, then he asked his disciples, no, but who do you say that I am? By the way, that's is the single most important question that you can ever be asked or ask other people in this world. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter, in one of those moments where he gets something right, he says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, Simon. Blessed are you, Simon, not blessed because you got the answer right, but the fact that this came to you through the illumination of the power of the Spirit of God. God is the one who gave you this illumination, and your illumination is proof that you are loved by God and blessed by God. Well done. You see, in that moment, I'm quite certain, based upon Peter's reaction and the rest of their reactions in the Gospels, that they instantly began to think about their lives. Jesus, my rabbi, my teacher, my master, is the Messiah. That means that all of the promises about the Messiah and his war and his campaigns and how he's going to emancipate us from the Romans to take out uh, all the other kings, that he will rule over them and he will raise up his people and give them back a physical land in the Middle East. I'm sure that they instantly began to plan out their map, their roadmap, their pathway, thinking, I'm going to be with a military-type Messiah, a Messiah who's going to conquer boldly, politically, which is why I think Jesus starts in verse 21. It says, from that time on, in other words, from that moment on, when they thought they were going to be following and standing side by side with a military type of Messiah, a political type of Messiah, Jesus begins to correct their misunderstanding. And it fundamentally changes them as we see Peter's reaction here. From that time on, Jesus began to show them he began to show them, I am the Messiah and I will accomplish everything that the scriptures say that I will accomplish, but I'm not going to do it in a way that you think I'm going to. Oh, I will be the King of kings and I will be the Lord of lords, but not in the way that you think I will. I will emancipate and free my people and I will give them life and I will break their bondage free, but not in the way that you think. 
Let me correct that right now, disciples. From that time on, verse 21, he began to show them what was necessary, what must take place. You see that word, what is necessary, what, may, what must take place. It reminds us that Jesus is not making this stuff up as he goes along. He is not saying, I am a Messiah today. What should I do? How will I accomplish this plan? When he tells them it is necessary, here are the things that I must do. I must carry them out. He is going back and he's telling them there is a plan of God that I must carry out as Messiah. I'm not making this up as I go along. There is a plan, a definite plan, a specific plan. And from the totality of scripture, we understand there was a plan before the foundation of the world. God had a plan before creation, before Adam and Eve, before the fall, before Genesis 1-1. God had a plan, which is why Scripture calls Jesus the lamb slain from, from before the foundations of the world. God had a plan. And we have to stop and remember that God in Trinity, God as he is, is infinitely perfect in all that he is. This is a God who when he makes his plan, he makes it with infinitely perfect knowledge. He knows all things, and he knew it then, he knows it now, and he will always know it in the future. He knows all things, actual, possible, hypothetical. He knows all things. He never gains in knowledge, and he never loses in knowledge. He is always infinitely perfect in all knowledge. He knows all things. He's infinitely perfect in power. Where he creates his plan, he will, by his omniscience and omnipotence, carry that plan to fruition. Furthermore, our God is immutable, which means he is, he is unchanging. The word of God says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change. And by the way, that's for our benefit. If God could change, it would imply that if he makes a change from today to tomorrow, it implies that what he was yesterday was imperfect, and what he is tomorrow through change would be greater perfection. It's to our comfort that our God does not and cannot change. He is immutable. When a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, immutable, who will not and cannot change, creates a plan, that plan will never change. And Christ is here saying, God has a plan. It is necessary for me as the Messiah to carry out that plan in absolute perfection. And I will carry out it by design. I will carry out in the timing of God, in the, in, the, in the way of God, in the manner of God, in the motive of God. I will carry out this plan and I will not and I cannot fail. God has a plan. And here's the hard part that I think he gives to the Messiah. And that the Messiah then gives to the disciples. Note the four things. It is necessary. Jesus says first, it is necessary, verse 21, that I go to Jerusalem. I'm sure that was, uh, if not a red light, then possibly a strong warning light for the disciples. You see, when you go back through Matthew, every time they've been in Jerusalem, they have escaped with their lives. Every time they've gone to Jerusalem, those, those groups of religious leaders are now banding together to try to trick Jesus, try to trap him in his words so that they might put him to death. That's their goal. And the disciples know if we go back to Jerusalem, then there is nothing but trouble awaiting us there. I must, according to the Father's plan, I must go back to Jerusalem. Must number two, I must suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders. 
I must suffer. I'm sure this is the first major red light that goes off in the heads of the disciples. How can, if you are the Messiah, you're the one that's supposed to conquer and conquer and conquer and emancipate, how are you going to suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders? How can the Messiah suffer? Third must, according to the plan, the perfect plan of God, I must be killed. And I'm sure this is the one that really sets them off. How are you going to be killed? If you're going to free us, if you're going to lead us in conquest, if you're going to defeat your enemies and free us as a people, how can you suffer many things and then be killed? Must number four. I must be raised again on the third day. You see, what they are not understanding at this moment is the truths behind the gospel, that according to the plan of God before the foundation of the world, the Christ would accept this mission, and that as Messiah, he would, at a moment in time, take on flesh. He would assume flesh to his divine nature so that he is fully God and fully man. And he would live a perfect life, a life of perfect obedience according to God, according to his law, according to his plan, according to, to, to the predetermined plan of God before the foundation of the world. He would live a sinless life so that he could suffer in our place. Isaiah 53, something, a passage we know all too well, but I'm sure escaped the, the disciples at this moment, says he was despised and forsaken. Of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one whom, from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smited by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It is through Christ carrying out this mission exactly according to the infinitely perfect and infinitely wise plan of God before the foundation of the world, carrying this out in life, suffering in our place. And at that moment when he is on that cross, God takes our sins and places them upon him. And there not only does he suffer at the hands of men, but there the wrath of God, perfect Trinitarian wrath, falls upon the person of Christ. So that those of us who confess Jesus with our mouth and our heart that he is Lord, so that we never have to face the wrath of God. And there he gives up his life so that he is raised on the third day in conquest, in victory, so that he can ascend to the right hand of the Father, so that the Father and Son can send forth the Spirit and apply in union all the works of Christ to the people of God. That's what they're not thinking. And he's doing all this because there is a plan of God that he must walk out. And furthermore, note this, God's plan requires, I want to hear this, requires suffering. God's plan is perfect. It is infinitely wise, which means that this is the plan in which God will receive the maximum amount of glory, and it will be for our ultimate good. No other plan can come close. This is it, the best plan possible. And it requires suffering. How will that now hit the disciples 
Look at Peter's reaction, verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Now, before we laugh, and I want to laugh, Peter stands in our place right here. You see, Scripture talks about three natures, three natures. The first nature that is the, the one that we receive in Adam. We have a nature that we inherit, right? It is that nature which is dead in sins and trespasses. We, we can sh define it short, and it's a lot more technical this, but you can think of nature number one, our natural in Adam, fallen nature, dead in sins and trespasses. In this nature, we can only sin, we cannot obey outside of God's divine work. Nature number three is the exact opposite of nature number one. Nature number three is for believers alone. The word of God says that someday at the return of Christ, their old believers will receive a glorified nature. A glorified nature is the exact opposite of a nature that's dead in sins and trespasses. In dead in sins and trespasses, you can only sin, you cannot obey. And when we are glorified, the only thing we can do, the only thing we long to do is obey. We will not have the ability nor the desire to sin. But what are we now? Yes, when we are born again, it is God causing us to be new creatures in Christ. And we are born again, regenerated, instantly changed. But we're not yet glorified. And in this new nature, born again but not yet glorified, we have the ability to obey by God's power and his strength. We can obey. But we also have the ability to sin. And friends, I know that as a born-again believer, regenerate, I sin. I fall short, and so do you. And when I sin, guess what I long for? I long for mercy. When I fall short, when I stumble, when I sin, I long for mercy and grace from my Lord and from those watching me when I stumble. So when Peter stumbles, and I'm sure, I'm sure on one hand we can read this and find a little bit of humor that, that, that stumbling Peter rebukes God the Son, but on the other hand, he stands right where we stand. He stands as a man who is born again, a new creature, a new creature in Christ, but he's not yet glorified. And he stumbles, and he stumbles big. He rebukes, in his flesh, he rebukes God the Son. His words there are actually, may God have mercy on you for having this thought, Jesus, that you would suffer and be killed. May God have mercy on you. That's the rebuke. And then he corrects Jesus. This will never happen to you, Lord. You will never suffer and you will never be killed. Before we get on him, too much. I want you to think about in your lives and the lives of those whom you love. When you suffer, when you are in pain, when it's you in the pit of despair, when it's you in the miry quagmire, when it's you who is no longer on the top of the mountain but in a valley and God is taking you through a trial, we have the tendency to respond in our flesh like Peter is. When we are going through it, we have the tendency to say, I am suffering, therefore, God, you have left me. I am going through pain, God, therefore, you have abandoned me. God, I am suffering immensely in this moment, and it's proof you do not love me. 
In our flesh, we do the exact same thing. In our flesh, with a me-centered mindset, we have the tendency, anytime we feel pain, anytime we feel suffering, we have the tendency to say, God, you're obviously not part of this. You have left me and you're no longer hearing me. Peter says what we typically say, perhaps not so boldly, but in our hearts, we have the tendency to say the same thing. And Jesus here corrects him and gives him three things. One, he, he says, Peter, when you have a me-centered mentality, when you have a human-centered mentality, you need to know this, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He's saying, you are an adversary to me. You see, my goal, Peter, is to carry out the perfect plan of God, the perfect will of God, according to the time of God. Because here's what you don't know, Peter. This is the only way salvation is possible. If I don't do this, salvation is not possible. This is the only way that people can be saved is if I do this according to the time of God, the will of God, and the timing of God, according to his plan. This is it. There is no plan B, Peter. So if you're telling me you don't have to suffer, Jesus, this will never, you will never be killed. If he's not suffering, then he's not crucified. If he's not crucified, it's not raised. If he's not raised, there's no ascension. If there's no ascension, there's no sending out of the spirit. Peter, with your me-centered mentality right now, you're actually a stumbling block to me. You're a stumbling block. You are a hindrance to me right now, Peter. Remove that me-centered mentality, he says, and he corrects him, and he says, put on a mind of God. Set your mind on the things of God at the end of verse 23. Take off the me-centered mentality. Take off the Peter first. All of us have a me-centered mentality type of flesh that says, me at all costs, preserve me at all costs. I don't want pain. I don't want sorrow. I want a life of ease, without burdens, without valleys. But we've already established God has a plan, and it's perfect. And that plan includes suffering. In order to put on the mind of God, in order to remove me-centered or a man-centered or a human-centered mentality and to put on a a God-centered or a Christ-centered mentality, how do we do this? We have to remember to follow our Christ. He's not only our redeemer, our savior, our deliverer. He has all these things, but he is also the one who shows us the way. And it's there right before he begins to suffer. You remember that? In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his suffering, right before the brutality, right before the arrest, right before the crucifixion, he is there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he shows us the way to take off a me-centered mentality and put on a Christ or a God-centered mentality. And he says these words, not my will be done. Not my will be done. We follow our Christ in this. Not my will be done, but yours be done, O Lord. Jesus says, if there is any other way, remove this cup from my hands. But alas, I know there is no other way. Not my will, not my will, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. So for us, when we begin to take off the me-centered mentality, and to put on a Christ-centered mentality, then every single morning when we wake up, before our feet even hit the bed, our prayer should start something like this. God, I praise you for sustaining me in the sleep 
There I was sleeping, not knowing what was around me, not knowing what was going on in the city around me. And you and your providence protected me when I was, wasn't even awake. Furthermore, God, you have given me another day of life. I am not owed tomorrow and I'm not owed today. But you, by your grace and mercy, are giving me one more day of life. And Lord, help me to have a Christ-centered mentality. Not my will be done. Lord, I'm praying today that you would not give me what's in here because I know what's in here. My heart is deceptively wicked. My heart wants, what, wants what's best for Ben no matter what it costs anyone else. My heart in the flesh, when I yield to these fleshly desires, it is wickedness. It is a life of ease without any pain. It is a life that, that in which I desire to be sanctified in the mountaintops and never the valleys. I want ease. I want comfort. I don't want sorrow and I surely don't want suffering. But God, I know you have a plan. And I know that plan calls for suffering. Not my will, oh Lord, but yours be done. Do you know what you're saying when you pray that prayer? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. If we know that God has a perfect plan and that his plan calls for suffering and pain and sorrows and not just a series of mountaintop, mountaintop, mountaintop experiences, but it also includes a lot of valleys, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, what we're saying, God, is not my will, but yours be done. So, Lord, here's my prayer to you this morning. Whatever you have to do in me and in my life that will make me maximize your glory for the benefit of other people, no matter how painful, no matter how bitter it tastes in the mouth, Lord, may you do that in my life. Make me the most usable servant that you can make me. Lord, if that calls for pain, though I am not looking for it, take me through it if it makes me your greater servant. If it is your will, O oh Lord, and I am called to go through valley after valley after valley after valley, if I am called to be in what Psalm 40, David says, to be the quagmire, the miry pit of destruction of mud, and Lord, may you do that in my life if it brings you more glory and it makes me more usable for your kingdom. A friend of mine a few weeks ago used an illustration of a pencil and a pencil sharpener. So this illustration is not original with me. And he took a pencil, you know the pencil's brand new out of a pack, it's just a, an eraser that never really works. And a blunt top. What do you have to do to that pencil to make it usable? You put it in the pencil sharpener. I use an old-fashioned two-hold one because the, uh, the, on those automatic ones, I just go, and it's right to, the, right to the nub, and it's useless. But think about if you're the pencil, and you start out as a blunt tool. There has to be a lot of you chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. Every time he takes you through a pit, every time he takes you through a fight, every time he takes you through a struggle, we feel it. We feel the pain. But what we don't know is that with every turn, he's making us sharper, more usable, more usable, more usable for his glory and his kingdom. And if that's what it takes 
to make me more fit for his glory and usable for his kingdom, that though I do not want it and I do not ask for it, Lord, make me that which brings you the most glory in my life, no matter how painful to me and painful to those around me. Make me usable. That is when we have the Christ-centered mindset. The mindset that says no matter what, no matter what, no matter how painful, Lord, make me usable today. And it's precisely when we have that Christ-centered, that God-centered mindset that says, not my will, but yours be done. And furthermore, Lord, do whatever it needs to be done in my life to bring you glory and make me usable. Then Jesus says, verses 24 and following, and we're not going to get to the rest. Verse 24, he says this. Now with that God-centered mindset on, with the me-centered mindset out, we have a Christ-centered and a God-centered mindset that says, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. Now you're ready. He says, now you're ready. He turns to the disciples and he says to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, remember what he just told them, I must go to the place where I'm not welcome. I must suffer many things and I must be killed and I will be raised on the third day. He does all that, not only to fulfill the plan of God, but he does it for our benefit. He suffers and is killed for our benefit. Now he's saying to those who long to follow in my footsteps, if you want to follow me, three things. One, apply that God-centered mindset. He says, deny yourself. Not just pray it. Not just pray, Lord, not my will be done. But he says, now apply it. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Get ready and apply it each and every day. I need to deny myself the things that this wicked heart wants. That needs to be the mantra of my heart, which is not, not my will be done. Not my will be done. Not my will be done. But yours, O oh Lord. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. That cross was the instrument by which our Lord not only suffered, but was killed. As God takes us through the valleys, as he takes us through those moments that radically change and alter our lives, we need to remember that God, when he takes us through the valleys, when he takes us through what the psalmist in Psalm 40 says is the pit of despair, he actually calls it a mud bog. If you've ever been in a mud bog, you know that the more you struggle, the more you sink. When we are there, up against it, suffering, in pain, sorrow, the more work I try to do, guess what? The worse I make it. And it's in that moment when we know that everything that I do is just leading to further sinking, further sinking, further sinking, it is only when I begin to cry out to God in those moments, God, deliver me. My very best effort just causes me to get worse and worse and worse. And Lord, there are moments, there are moments in times of suffering where I can't breathe and I can't see one thing over another. There's nothing I can do. Lord, in this moment and in this valley, Lord, you have me. 
You see, what we don't realize is in those moments, he's actually making us closer to him. He's drawing us closer. He's taking us, and he's growing us in sanctification through the suffering, not just on the mountaintops, but it's in the valley when we grow closer to God, grow closer to Christ, grow in our Christ-likeness. It's in the suffering when we lean upon him most because we have nothing else. Pick up your cross. Trust in God. Have complete faith in God that as he's taking you through the valleys and those moments of suffering, he has you and he will never let you go. In the pit of despair, we think, God, you don't have me. He has us and he will never let us go. We think because we, it's in our time, we don't think that he has us. He not only has us, but he's causing us to grow, causing us to grow, causing us to grow, to be more like Christ until psalmist in Psalm 40 says, and all of a sudden, in his patient timing, he places our foot on firm ground. Friend, he will get us through the storm. He will hold us fast, and he will ensure in his timing, according to his perfect plan, he will bring us through. Psalm 40 also says that upon our feet being on solid ground, that there is an instant song, a song of God's praise. And isn't that beautiful? When God takes us from moments we can't see on top of another, when we can't breathe one breath more, that God takes us, holds us fast, binds us up, and he takes us, and then we're finally out of that moment of suffering, and we're on solid ground. What's our response? God, to you be the glory. You have done this. Yes, I bear scars. Yes, I am a different person on the other side of this. But God, to you be the glory. You brought me safe. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. What did Jesus do? He carried out the perfect plan of God, which includes suffering and being killed so that he might suffer for us, for our benefit. Once we have been through the pit, been through the quagmire, we have scars. But you know what those scars do? They tell a story. I've got a scar right here. It's a nasty scar. It's almost 20 years old and it looks as bad as it did on the first day. Uh, and that scar tells a story. You know what it says? Don't ever act like a 20-year-old man again, you idiot. <laughs> Our spiritual scars tell a story. They remind us of where we've been. I was in a pit of despair with no hope. And God, by his grace and mercy, grabbed me, held me fast, bound me up, and placed me on firm footing. And I know that he is good. I know that I can trust him. Those scars tell a story. And friends, when we follow after Christ, we're not only saying, God, I trust you to do whatever you need to do in my life to make me more usable. But Lord, now, just as Christ suffered for other people's benefit, may you use me. May you use my scars. May you use my story. May you use my suffering so that I might be the friend who is going through it right now. So that when I look upon others who are in the pit of despair, who are going through the valley, and they can't breathe on their own, Lord, may I be the first to go to them with fresh wounds, fresh scars, 
knowing that you will never waste a tear, you will never waste my suffering, you will never waste my scars, but you will use them as I get to go now and say to people, I know you're in the midst of it, I know you can't breathe, but you can trust in God, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he has saved you and he will hold you fast. And I, as your friend, will be there with you every step of the way, encouraging you, because I've been there. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. About a month ago, I called my mom, and she was still crying, of course. I, it's, I don't think that's a, a loss you get through easily. And I said, Mom, I'm just having some difficulties. And I said, I'm going to ask you to pray. And she said, Ben, she actually calls me Benji because my parents can do that. You can't, but she can. She said, Ben, all I've been able to do is pray for the last year and a half. But she said, now, when someone asked me to pray for them, because that's all I've been doing, that's all I do. It is my joy and honor to lift you up to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he has you at this moment. She is now a prayer warrior for me. God has not wasted her sorrow. God has not wasted her tears. She is now, right now, interceding on my behalf, lifting me up to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter himself. We laugh at him. We say he has foot and mouth disease. But you remember his biggest, his biggest public shame? Denying our Lord and Savior three times. And yet, it's precisely through this moment on the other side when he's standing before Jesus and Jesus says, do you love me? You can almost hear his response with tears. Lord, you know I do. Do you love me? Lord, you know I do. I'm a changed man. Because of what I went through, the pain and the suffering and the sorrow, the humiliation of denying you, you know I love you. Do you love me? He took that man who used to have foot and mouth disease and by his grace and for his glory he made him one of the men by which he would change the world who now gives us 30 to 40 verses on how to suffer well. Friends, I say all this so that I can give you this. You have been brought to this place to prepare for ministry. Ministry is not a series of mountaintop after mountaintop after mountaintop after mountaintop, though you will have many. Praise God for them. But when you have the mountaintop experience, gird your loins, my friends, because in the next moment, <gasps> you're going to be in the valley. And you're going to be caused to cling to Christ as though you have never done it before. Hold fast to him because he's all you've got. And when he has brought you through the other side, then you're ready. Then you are ready to let your scars be a testimony of his grace, his mercy, his power, his forgiveness, so that you can, for the rest of your ministry, pour yourself out for the benefit of others, just as our Savior did.
Amen? Let's pray.